Moto America fans, it's time for another episode of Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you may even learn something from this unlikely pair and their special guest. The mic is yours, Paul and Sean. Well, good morning, everybody. It might be morning, it might be afternoon, it might be evening, I don't know, but uh, good whatever it is for you and your time zone and when you're listening to this. Um, this is Moto America's podcast, Off Track with Carruthers and Vice. I'm Paul Carruthers, and I'm joined today by Sean Vice out in Ohio. I'm in Southern California. It's not even sunny Southern California at this point, Sean, so I don't know what's going on. Boy, it's, it's a little cloudy here too, but you know, it's actually, uh, we're getting a little Indian summer. It had gotten cold, but we got through that storm front that I brought from down in uh, Birmingham up north to Ohio. That got out of here and now it's, it's a pretty nice day, but you know, it's weird, Paul. I am really kind of thinking a lot about and focusing on the upcoming Daytona that this is going to be cool to go there again. I'm psyched. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those places that initially when I stopped going, cause I've been, I've been going since I was a kid with my dad and yeah. then went back, you know, when, when he was working with Kenny Roberts and then went back as when I was the, uh, when I was working at cycle news. So I've spent many, many years there. In fact, I only missed like 1989. I missed my daughter was born on the same Sunday as the Daytona 200. So they, uh, they couldn't make me miss that. So that was the one time I missed, and uh, that was when John Ashmead won. It was kind of an odd one. It wasn't actually a bad <laughs> one to miss. But, uh, I, yeah, I've been there a million times. It's one of those places where by the end of the week, you're, like, so over it, you want to get out of there. But then yeah. going into it, you're always excited, and it's kind of fun to – the way it used to be anyway was, you know, it was, it was a true bike week where there was flat tracks and supercross, and everything was kind of piled on together. So it was a pretty cool way to start the motorcycling season. And it was a big deal to the manufacturers to – to win Daytona because, you know, it was one of those win on Sunday, sell on Monday deals that, and in the time that actually was the case, that wasn't just a bunch of BS. So um, no, it'll be fun going back there. It's uh, it'll, it'll definitely be different. It'll be a different feeling work, walking into that, that media center. And unfortunately that, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, that media center will always remind me of Henny Ray Abrams. Cause yes. it's, kind of, it's kind of the first place we get together every year. And we always stayed together and worked hard together. And that, that's the one place that will, uh, will make me remember him, which is, which is kind of a cool thing because uh, sometimes I don't think about him as much as I should have. But when I do, it's, it's pretty cool because, you know, there's a lot of memories there. And we, like I said, we, we, we accomplished a lot together. So he'll, he'll always be missed. You know, it's going to be interesting to see this year with entry list stuff and entries, because in the past, we know that a lot of people would come over from Europe and um, there were a few over here last year. But now that it's, you know, within Mo Moto America's sanctioning, although not part of the super sports season, but um, hopefully it's going to attract more people. And and one of the things that I always remember about Daytona is it always attracted a lot of people up in, all over the country but up and down the East coast for sure. And absolutely a lot of people from Canada would go down to Daytona and, you know, obviously Miguel, you know, it's a special place for him, Miguel Duhamel, but there are so many Canadian riders that race down there. And I'm segueing into that, Paul, because we got a guy on today that, you know, I know raced at Daytona a bunch of times too. So um, I'll, I'll tip that off to you. And he's Canadian, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's the point. Well, yes. Let's uh, let, let's talk for a second about John Cornwell. He's 
I mean, what a season this guy's had. It's his first season as a crew chief, and he crew chiefs for the exactly the right guy in uh, Jake Gagne. You know, they win 17 of, of 19 races. They win the, the Moto America Superbike Championship. And, you know, you can talk to Gagne. Gagne, I noticed, was a changed individual, even as far back as the, the Moto America test we did at Coda. And he, would, and he told me at the time, he's like, man, my crew is really good. Corn dog's really good. And this is going to be good. And, and he, he had confidence right away. And, and that just carried on throughout the season. But that's the kind of thing, you know, people tend to overlook the crew, the crew chief as not being as important as they are. And, you know, with my background, with my father and everything, you know, in that role, the, the, the importance of it is just, it's just, it's everything. And, uh, and it was good to see John get the opportunity uh, to do that and to come in and, you know, like you said, I don't know that there's a there's a crew chief alive that has the winning record that John Cornwall has, and it's only been one year. So, congrats to him, and let's have a chat with him. John, welcome to uh, welcome to the podcast, all the way up from Canada. Hey, thanks, thanks for having me on, guys. It's been it's been a, a fun uh, opportunity listening to you guys talk already. Well, shoot, I don't know about that, but I want to ask you real quick: this crew chief job, now that you have it. It's like, I can't imagine you not being without it, but how did, is it something you've always wanted to do or because you've done, you've done millions of different jobs inside the paddock in addition to being a very good motorcycle racer, what, what kind of led to, to the idea of being a crew chief? It really was just opportunity. I actually had an opportunity to be a crew chief with Larry Pegram when he ran the EBRs back in 2014, I think, in Europe. And I was the crew chief for Nick Canepa. And Larry called me up the, the fall, the previous fall. And he said, hey, he says, I got this opportunity to run this EBR World Supers bike team. And he says, I'd really like to have you on board and be the crew chief for Nick. Um, he says, I think you'd be a really good crew chief. And um, I think it'd be a really good opportunity for you. And at that point, I was still sort of getting my feet wet working in the U.S. paddock. Um, I had spent, you know, 16 years working in World Superbike paddock uh, as a suspension technician. And I had the opportunity to see a lot of different crew chiefs and different teams and different formats of how those teams worked and so on and so forth. So I thought it would be a good opportunity for me with Larry to go and see if I could get my feet wet with this and see how I liked it. And I liked it just fine. <laughs> and now you really like it. Yeah. And I and do like it. I will say that this year has been um, a, a bit of an eye opener in a lot of ways. The world Superbike thing that we did with Larry, it was expected for me. It was kind of expected that it was going to be, um, Mm, uh, kind of a shoestring. There was going to be, you know, not so many guys and we were going to all be wearing seven hats and we were going to be trying to pull on the rope in the same direction all the time. And it wasn't going to go as smoothly as I have seen some of the other teams that are in World Superbike Paddock work. Uh, this year, uh, again, the circumstances weren't uh, as ideal, I had seen the Yamaha factory effort before, 
And so I knew that there had always been, you know, good manpower and there had always been uh, enough people to do all the jobs. And unfortunately, nowadays, I think it's a it's more important to actually get the right people rather than all, you know, too many people or um, more people. And in this case, that's exactly what it was like. Uh, it was a it was a fairly lean crew, but everybody worked really well together and we all helped each other, which was important for me because there are a lot of things uh, as a crew chief that I was still uh, a neophyte at and I needed to kind of get my feet wet and have somebody behind me a little bit that, you know, poke me once in a while and remind me about uh, oh, hey, you, did you get the fuel mileage for that practice session? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay, let me go write that down. You know, things like that. And Mike Canfield and Walker and Richard Stamboli, I can't thank them enough because they embraced my um, sort of inexperience and they covered for me in some ways that um, may not have been, uh, the result may not have come out as nice without uh, having those guys in the background. You know, John, in the past, we had Rick Hobbs on and we talked to him about what it takes to be a crew chief and how you, how you have to wear a lot of hats. There's some psychology involved. There's obviously technical expertise and things like that. And I really kind of noticed it when you were the suspension guy on Westby Racing. You would, uh, Matthew would come in and sometimes you would like get right up to Matthew and you'd be talking real close to him. In fact, I remember sometimes you would put your hands on either side of his helmet and you were like talking right into his, his, uh, the opening in his helmet. And I was thinking, you know, not to diminish suspension settings, but that wasn't just talking about, you know, re uh, rebound damping or uh, preload. There's, there was something going on there that was more involved in that. And you kind of were crew chief like on that team. And, you know, I, I actually talked to Matthew this morning and I called him and I told him you were going to be on and he wanted me to tell you that he really misses having you on the team. And he, he echoed that same thing is that you brought a lot to the table that was, you know, beyond just what you're, and I don't mean to diminish it again, but beyond what you were doing as a suspension guy. So obviously you've been doing some of this. Um, can you talk about sort of the, I don't know if it's the psychological side of it or, you know, this, this part of being a crew chief that goes beyond just the technical aspects? You have to be able to recognize what it is in the rider that makes them special. You have to find that undefinable uh, quality in them. And you have to always be on good terms with that part of them. And you have to remind them, the riders, of their own undefinable quality that allows them to do things on a motorcycle that we sometimes have our jaws fall on the floor about. <laughs> uh, a lot of times the riders themselves get so wrapped up in um, trying to go fast that they lose sight of a couple of things. The first thing they lose sight of is the fun factor. And the, I don't care who you are and at what level you ride at. It's really important to maintain that aspect of what you are doing, even if you are the highest paid professional in the world. 
if you don't have any of that fun factor and if it becomes a chore or if it becomes drudgery, if it becomes um, just another daily, you know, disruption of my life, then you're not giving yourself or the team or the bike the attention and respect that it deserves. So it's better to try to embrace that part, find a way to reconnect with it and make it your own. And a lot of the times what I'm doing when I was talking with these riders and, you know, trying to get inside their helmets is I'm first thing I'm doing is I'm looking at their eyes, yeah. the eyes of a rider when they come off of the racetrack after they've done a stint or if they've done a qualifying lap, they give you a really good window into what it was like for them out on the racetrack. And you can kind of work from that to try to uh, reinforce or help, um, help them sort of digest what just went on. Because in some cases, things are happening so fast when you're trying to do a qualifying lap that's another second and, and, or so faster than any other lap that you've done on the track that you can get behind a little bit. And when you get behind a little bit, there are some uncertainties that are happening because you're arriving at the corners before you were expecting to. And so you're basically doing this all by muscle memory. And being able to tap into that muscle memory and be able to remember what it was that allowed you to do that lap that fast, even though the tire was a slightly better, you can probably use some of that to be able to continue to build on your uh, ability to go faster the next time you go out, say, without a qualifying tire. How, John, how well did you know um, Jake before you got started on this? And, and also I want to throw in, I could be wrong, but in, in my mind, Jake, Jake Gagne and Matthew Fultz are pretty far are pretty different from each other. So talk, talk about the mindset of Jake and, and again, how, how well you knew him to start with and how you know him now, I guess. When I first met Jake was, uh, uh, at least in this particular uh, opportunity with the uh, Fresh and Lean team was the first test that we did in November uh, in Buttonwillow. I did not really know him that well. He was a casual acquaintance, somebody that you had a nodding acquaintance with, you know, say, hey, I knew that he had been uh, one of Danny Walker's protégés and he, he had worked with Danny for quite some time. So I knew him from that. And I had watched him in 2015 when he had absolutely dominated on that R1 in the Superstock class. And I, you know, paid attention to a lot of what he was doing then based on my job at the time, which was the suspension technician, and I was working with Westby in a little bit at that point. So I was kind of curious to see what, you know, what the differences in the bikes were at that point and trying to use some of what I was seeing with Jake and trying to help Matthew, you know, improve his, his himself and, and our bike and make it so that we could be a little bit more of a, a threat and a challenge to Jake. But to say that I knew him, no, I didn't. I first, like I said, my first go around with Jake and introduction and getting to know him was at that test. Um, he is, uh, my first impression was, is that, uh, well, actually I should preface that the year before I was a suspension technician for Yamaha 
um, at arm's length. I wasn't able to be in the pit box or in the, in the trailer full time. So I was doing it sort of uh, remotely, if you will. Um, and I got to see Jake a little bit and talk to him when he was in his debrief with the data and the crew chief at the time, Glenn. And I got a sense of from him that he was frustrated. There was a lot of there was a lot of discussion between himself and the data and the crew chief. And I don't think Jake was able to uh, get a connection there where they could fully understand what it was that he needed and what he wanted. And so there was always a little bit of a reserve from Jake's side of things to, to actually talk because at some point he just kind of said, well, this is, this is, this is it. I can't, you know, we've tried, we've tried, we've tried, we turned the bike upside down and it's not, it's not responding. So right now it's just up to me and I'm just going to go and ride the bike and do the best I can with what I have. But this isn't ideal. This isn't what he wanted. And um, like I said, when we got to that test in, in December, I was a little bit wary because I knew that he was still suffering a little bit from the, well, what kind of a crew chief am I going to get? And what kind of a data guy am I going to get? Uh, I'm hoping for the best but I'm, you know, kind of just holding myself back a little bit in reserve. But after he rode the bike the very first time and at Button Willow, and it was a completely different motorcycle to him, even though it was the same bike. And I'm not sure, you know, that there was much different aside from a small, some small changes in the electronics but the whole team seemed to be in a different place. Everybody was much more, you know, eager and happy and we're working hard. And Jake saw that. And I think that he embraced the fact that everybody else was on his side at that point. And we were all going to do whatever we had to do to make sure that he had the tool that he needed to get the job done. Okay, John, it was obviously, it was obviously a very, special season for you and for Jake is is there a race that stands out in your mind that was more special than another one and that might be because you had some issues in the morning or you had some issues the day before and you didn't think you were going to get to where you got where you ended up getting to is there one of those races that jumps out or not mm. actually it's kind of funny but the whole year was pretty much a blur between traveling back and forth to Huntington Beach and helping Walker and, and Richard and uh, getting the bikes ready and loaded. And, you know, when Lee was around, he would be there as well. Uh, then get to the racetrack and get everything set up and just trying to keep up with, you know, all my notes and uh, the scenarios that may be presenting themselves. So to actually say to myself, was there one moment that actually stood out, I would have to say that there was a couple. Mm -hmm. Now that I think about that, there was a couple. One of them was the race at Laguna Seca when Loris was so close to Jake for the whole race. And Jake won that race, but it wasn't like the usual 10 or 11 second beatdown. It was, you know, the whole race was 
around a second, a second and a half. And then after that race, you know, there's a sigh of relief because we had, you know, we had done it. He had won another race and on a track that he has never, he told me himself, he never really embraced Laguna Seca. It wasn't one of his favorite tracks. So he wasn't expecting that he was going to be dominant there. And then, you know, he had a decent practice, decent qualifying, and then he had that race with Loris. And then afterwards, he said that that was good because that actually exercised a demon for him, I think, in that he was able to beat Laguna Seca to his satisfaction, keep Loris behind him, even though Loris was nipping at his heels and constantly keeping the, keeping the uh, separation, the splits, pretty pretty tight and he was able to lead the race from the front and control it with the pit board and I think that that was the realization for him that he could actually you know race on his own out front and rely on the pit board information for him to know how he needed to ride so that he could keep his lead and keep his consistency and still make sure that he had enough left at the end in case something came up and then the second one was of course the last race weekend at barber he had a rough qualifying and then it rained and of course rain equalizes everything for the most part when you think about winners and losers and you know results at races in the wet it's always interesting because you always see names that you don't necessarily normally figure are going to be there. And yet in the wet, everything becomes a little bit closer and a little bit tighter. Sure, the cream rises to the top as usual, but you always get those wild cards that are really good in the wet and they, they relish it. And, you know, you kind of like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. And for Jake to be able to have started so far back, on the Saturday race and work his way through the field and end up third, even though we had missed a little bit on the setup. I thought that was a sign of really good crafts, racecraft and um, also kind of being patient and knowing that the guys out front, they were a little bit too far. And I can't, you know, I'm not going to take any chances. There's no reason for me to take any chances at this point. Um, I'm just going to keep riding at the pace that I can ride at, uh, even after I crashed, even so that I can figure out what I got to do the next day in case the same sort of situation arises. You know? And that was good because he was able to finish that race and he did good lap times at the end of it and he felt comfortable about it. And that was kind of, again, that was kind of like an eye opener for him to say, well, I don't really need to push that hard. Mm-hmm. I can just ride at the pace that I have and the race will come to me. And then the next day we missed uh, quite a bit on the electronic setup and he wasn't able to recover from that 13th place to get, a, um, you know, to win it. But at the same time, he learned a lot and he was able to bring back valuable information that allowed us to make a good change on the motorcycle 
And then by the third race, we had a motorcycle underneath him that he was just absolutely and utterly confident in. He knew exactly what it was going to do, when it was going to do it, where it was going to do it. And he never put a wheel wrong. And after he got off the bike at the end of the race, there was no, you know, there was no strain or stress in his face, which is usually the case in a rain race because it takes so much of your concentration and effort to place the bike where it needs to be and be so careful with the throttle and not making any mistakes, being offline, remembering where all the streams were, trying to, you know, keep track of what the, tra the, the conditions are changing during the course of the race and being able to remember to get the tires cool or stay away from that stream. And, you know, that was the sign of maturity after he got off of that bike on the, after the third race, he's like, yep, that was, that was exactly what he wanted and he did it. All right. Well, let's back up a little bit farther than that. You talked about the strain and the stress on his face. What, what did your face look like when that thing vomited its guts on like the second lap of your very first race at road Atlanta? Um, I would like to say that my face kind of went dang, <laughs> right. you know, here we are. We were hoping to have a good start of the season. And not only that, he had crashed in the qualifying as well. And so I'm thinking, well, honestly, I've been doing this for so long, Paul, that there are no situations that crop up anymore where I think to myself, that I don't get, I don't get too low and I don't get too high. I just allow the situation to evolve and, you know, okay. So what's the next step after the bike stops? Okay. Well, the next step is to fix it and be ready for tomorrow. And there's no point in, in trying to dwell on what happened to cause that at that moment because you don't have time you have to get the bike ready for the next one the time to be thinking about you know what what could cause it or what you're going to do differently is when you have a moment that you can actually physically sit down and actually go through the data and figure some stuff out so i was i was disappointed for jake for myself it really doesn't it's not it's not the end of life for me but for Jake, it was a, you know, I could see that it was, he was so amped up and he was so excited because he knew what kind of a package he had underneath him. And he really wanted to show people just how good and, and how happy he was to be riding that bike. You know, John, it's interesting. Let's kind of continue along that theme because when Paul asked you that question, I got to thinking about another moment and um, I, I I, we're not trying to dwell on the bad moments, but sometimes it shows character and it kind of shows what you have to do or, or, or did do as a crew chief. I want to ask you, take us inside the pit box at Brainerd after you had that crash, because when I see the um, coverage of that on Inside Moto America and I see Jake, Mr. Laidback, you know, cool, everything's fine, but we know he has a fire burning inside him. He went nuts. He was so upset after he crashed. I don't think he threw anything around, but he was really, really angry. Um, I don't even, I guess he was angry at himself, but take us back into that moment. Did you have to talk to him and, and bring him back to a certain place? Or can you tell us what that was all about, that whole thing? Sure. So uh, what happened there was, is that 
we had had a crash there during the test. And it was basically a carbon copy of the crash that he had in the first lap of that race. And we had talked, myself and Richard had talked with Jake and we had been discussing with him uh, trying to manage that particular corner because it's very, very easy to get caught out in that corner. And I speak from experience because I was, uh, I fell off on the last lap of the 250 GP race trying to pass Chuck Sorensen there much uh, in the same manner. And it's a, it's a result of the tire getting so hot on that part of the tire on that right side and trying to take too much too soon through the middle and exit. And instead of just trying to give the bike a, li a little bit of its head and allow it to kind of flow a little bit more through the corner. And if you see where Jake crashed, the line was slightly off from where he would normally ride. So he was a little tighter. And the same thing happened at the test in that he got into that corner too deep and carried the speed a little bit too far around the middle of the corner and carried it too tight and lost the rear end the same way. And that's what he was mad about. More than anything was the fact that he knew in his mind that he had run through this scenario already. And this is exactly what he didn't want to have happen. Unfortunately, as soon as you put the visor down, as we all know, sometimes some things get left behind. And when you are in a situation like that, where you're out front and you're trying to put in a good lap or a good marker in the first couple of laps to give yourself that cushion so that you can relax a little bit afterwards, sometimes you just don't quite hit the mark and the result is either you get get away with it, you know, pops you out of the seat and you recover, or in his, in his case, you go down and you spin the bike out and you have to come back in and we fix it up and away you go. Back to the bike again. The you you were around in you were around when motorcycles weren't like they are today. Like for example, that the incident that happened at Road Atlanta, that is so rare anymore for those sort of things to happen that as a crew chief, I'm sure at this point, you can almost not take that out of your mind, but it's not your number one concern. Your number one concern is do, do we have the electronics right? Do we have the setup right? Is he comfortable? Is he confident, et cetera, et cetera. But you were also around back in the day where you any given lap, running around Daytona or whatever, whether that be on your two-stroke 250 or a TZ 750 or what have you, the bike might break because that's what they did at the time. So it's probably a lot less stressful now than it was then. And my other question and kind of follow up with that is when you did this, John, did, did, were you on your own or did you have that guy that you learned from or that, that, that played your role in the role that you're playing with Jake? I'll answer the first part uh, um, first as, as the questions came to me, Paul. So it's very interesting that you bring that up uh, now. I was having this thought in my mind about uh, what was, you know, what's different between then and now. And this year being on the, you know, in on the ground floor with the preparation of the motorcycles and 
also at the races, keeping an eye on every detail of the motorcycle with Richard and Darren's help. I'm not going to say that it's any different hmm. as far as mm, keeping track of all of those things that you know can be a problem. So back in, you know, back when we were racing the 252 strokes with carburetors and stuff like that, you know, you were worried about jetting. You were worried about uh, making sure that all of the nuts and bolts and fasteners and everything were on in the correct manner. Those kinds of things are still there. In fact, watching the bike over the course of the race on the data acquisition is something that you have to do because you never know what's going to happen as you're watching the motorcycle. You can see a glitch or something that's happening in the electronics. Uh, there'll be a change in, say, maybe the fueling, or you might see something in the in the, the performance of the motorcycle on the data acquisition that goes and you know your antenna goes up and you go, wait, what what's that? So we had a couple of cases this year where we had a couple of those little moments that popped up in one session and we had to make some decisions. Okay. So what are we going to do? So you have to make a decision. Well, you got to fix it because, or you got to find out what caused it. Those things I think didn't exist back then. I know they didn't exist back then because you never had that kind of detailed um, information gathering. So now you're a little bit further ahead of the game. You can be proactive about what you see happening, but it doesn't mean that it's any less, um, uh, there's any less possibility of those things happening. It's just different. Right. And so like, it's a constant, constant attention uh, grabbing and your, your focus and your concentration is constantly trying to see whether there's anything that you're seeing on the data that can come back and may be a problem. So now you're a little bit ahead of it. You may fix it so that you don't have the failures that you saw in the past, but that doesn't mean that they're, that they don't happen. It's just that you may actually have more of an opportunity to be ahead of the curve as opposed to being in the pits, watching it, you know, melt down on the, on the track. Okay. So listen, this is what it is. It's an earthquake versus a tornado. Whereas in, in the old days, you didn't know it was an earthquake because you had no idea it was coming until it hit you. With the tornado, you can board up the windows and try to get things organized when it's going to happen. Absolutely right. That's a good analogy. All right, good. I'm <laughs> glad I did something right today. Good, Paul. Thanks, man. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> hey, uh, what, I, I want, we want to ask you about Daytona, uh, John, but before that, I want to touch on a little bit about Darren Marshall. So this was an interesting year. Darren Marshall, who is also Canadian as you are, and by the way, uh, John is talking to us from YYZ. That's Toronto, if you know Rush. That's the call letters for up that area. And, and John grew up right across the St. Lawrence River from me. So I had to throw that in there. He was in Kingston. I was uh, on the other side in America. We watched the same uh, TV stations in Canada. We grew up on uh, the Friendly Giant and uh, Mr. Dress Up. So we know, you know, that's why he and I are such kindred spirits. But anyway, let me get to what I was getting at. Sorry, I had to uh, digress for a minute there. So John, about about uh, about Darren Marshall, it was weird. He was in he's in Nova Scotia most of the year. He's doing this remotely. 
He shows up for, I guess, the last two rounds of the season. Um, did it make a difference for him to be there or not to be there? I mean, did you guys prove something? We suffered when he wasn't there. Okay. There's a time lag that happens in certain cases. And also having the extra body there with um, Darren allowed Richard and myself to actually be able to focus on a couple of other things that we may not have been able to devote our full attention on. Um, and uh, Darren is also, you know, been around a long time and he has been uh, quite experienced in seeing the same sorts of uh, what if scenarios, if you want to call them that. So he brought an, uh, an element of calm to the table when he showed back up because we realized that we had somebody else that could keep an eye on things over our shoulders, which is really good because, you know, it's six eyes are better than two, so to speak. And uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed having Darren there. It was a novelty to have him doing it remotely. But at the same time, I really appreciated the fact that when he did show up, it made things a little bit cleaner and more immediate. Instead of having to make a phone call, I could just turn around and say, hey, what about this? And, he'd, uh, you know, two seconds later, he'd have it as opposed to hoping that the, you know, the phone connection was going to be okay or that the internet connection was going to be okay so that we could actually see what we wanted to see. So, yeah, it was good to have him there. So let's switch gears and talk about Daytona a little bit, John. Now, of course, we aren't going to be racing superbikes there next spring, but you uh, being a former two-stroke racer, 250 GP racer, have gone to Daytona a billion times. And, you know, how many times do you think you've been to Daytona? And what does Daytona mean to you personally? Mm. Paul and I were comparing notes about that the other day, and I actually don't... Um... I don't actually have that number in front of me. It suffice to say that I believe the first time that I was in Daytona was either 1973 or 74. Wow. So we, my father and I, and two friends of my dad's drove from Toronto to Daytona in a Chrysler K car, nonstop. <laughs> and we got there in time for qualifying and uh, of course we watched the big race on the Sunday so got to hang out a little bit and then of course drove home and uh, then from that point I think I missed maybe two Daytonas in that era and then after that it was pretty much non-stop up until ooh, I'm gonna say 2000 and mm, probably 2004 or five when I was working World Superbike and I wasn't able to get back to do that one but even when i was working in the world superbike paddock i would always try to make it a uh, uh, uh make it possible for me to go to daytona and help out some of the people that i had worked with in north america as well why is that what is it about daytona daytona is one of those races where it, you just kind of you're always on the edge of your seat you're watching the bikes go by and sure it's a, you know, it's, it's the same old track it's always been, 
but the situations are always different. You never know what's going to happen. Um, you're trying to, you're trying to anticipate. You're trying to you know, keep encouraging your your crew and your riders to maintain the positivity. If you see things that you know haven't quite gone the way you want, um, but at the same time, you, you can't afford you know to lose any of your focus because, like I said, you never know what's going to happen. You could have a red flag. You could have you know the leader could have a problem, and then all of a sudden. You know, there you are, you were fifth and now you're in contention. And it's just always been a super interesting race. It's always been one of those things where it's a, it's a test of not just the rider, but of the crew of being able to do rapid uh, pit stops, be organized, be focused and have all of your scenarios ready to go in case you have a crash, have everything ready there and, Rider can get the bike back to the pits. You can whack the thing back together and send them back out and still, you know, uh, expect that you might actually get a, a, a decent finish out of it. Um, the whole atmosphere of Daytona has changed tremendously since the, you know, the days that Paul and I were there in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, of course it's, and that's understandable. Uh, but it's still, it's Daytona and trying to explain to somebody what it means to you as a person who's been going there for, you know, 35 years, it's not that easy because there's, there's certain things about Daytona that are just undefinable and it's just part of you. It's ingrained. Okay. So it's this last week of uh, February. That means that we're getting everything boxed up. And then we're loading the truck up. We're heading down to Daytona. I mean, I was doing Daytona as a dirt track racer, and it was the first big, you know, show, big races of the year to start off the season. So it, there's a lot of things that go on in Daytona. There's a lot to see, a lot to do and catch up with. And, yeah, it's just a cool place. John, we're getting close to the end here, but I wanted to – Paul allowed me to ask you this question. So um, – when we were at the when we were at Barber last weekend, we had all that rain. I actually went back. I had some deja vu. I thought of a race that I think you were in, and I want to see if you remember and can help me with this. I think it was 1993 at Loudon, and I think it was pouring in the 250 GP race. And I think it was pouring so bad there was puddling in corners. And I think a lot of the guys didn't finish because back then they didn't really know how to waterproof their electrical connections very well. So there was a lot of attrition in that race. I don't know if that was the year, but I do know it was loud in the heavy rain. And that was during the time when you were racing uh, two fifty two strokes. And so were you in that race? And do you know, do you remember what I'm talking about? I sure do. And I do remember that race. Um, I don't actually know or remember where I finished in that race, to be honest with you. I'm pretty I sure I finished. I yeah, I, I couldn't find it. If I do, I'll definitely announce it. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, for some reason, I, huh, I don't want to say I, I know I finished that race. I know it was a war of attrition. And I know that it's one of those memories that I will always have and treasure because I can say to someone when we're at a rain race or what have you, I can bring my own experience, which I'm not really that fond of doing because a lot of times it's not that relevant. But in cases like this, you can just say, listen, you know, the conditions out there are bad. I understand what you're going through. I've been through the same thing. 
This is a war of attrition and survival, and it's mainly between you, the rain, and the racetrack. If you can get through those three things and keep your focus and keep your momentum and not make any mistakes, the result that you have is probably going to be pretty good. <laughs> so, so just like me, you, you must have thought of that, that race last weekend during all that rain, huh? I sure did. <laughs> I remember, I remember standing at the pit or on the, on the wall uh, from the infield, looking up the track where the riders were coming down back onto the trial and into the infield uh, around the pits and seeing Scott Russell coming, splashing down the hill, turns right, then he had to turn left. And when he made the left, there was a puddle there that was so big that I'm pretty sure it was over the top of the front wheel because the bow wave that came off the front of the motorcycle was incredible. <laughs> that whole weekend was a washout. That was a crazy time for sure. But I, I just remember that 250 GP race was was nuts because bikes are so small and you guys, you know, were almost over your heads in the water, it seemed like at times. So it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So Paul, I guess we I got that in. I guess we can wrap it up and let John go on his way here. Um uh, you know, I, I want to add one thing we mentioned about Daytona. So Daytona tickets are actually on sale. General admission tickets you can get. You can go to our website, click on the calendar, click on Daytona. And Paul, check me on this, but I believe Ridge tickets are also on sale for next year. So we've got a couple of our venues who are already uh, ready to sell tickets for our next coming season. So um, Paul, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And and those will get added as we as they as they're ready to uh, to start selling. So it's next year is going to be awesome. I mean, it's. Uh, I'm looking forward to it already, though I will admit that it's nice to have a little bit of a break. And John was a, John's a, now a, he's, he's almost as good of a, a podcast guest as he is a crew chief. And that's saying yeah. a lot. So it was nice having you on board today, John. I always appreciate uh, and, and like the chances we get to, to catch up and talk because we could stand there for hours and do so because we have a lot of the same, hey. uh, a lot of the same memories from things. Hey guys, have we got have we got just a second or two? Yes, yeah. we do. Okay, so listen to this. Last weekend, Loris Baz goes back to World Superbike and finishes what sixth in the first race and I yeah. think uh, sixth ninth or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So Loris Baz comes over here, and he is competitive, mm -hmm. but he's not killing us. Mm -hmm. So I think that that ought to make all of us people that work in Moto America and especially the racers that have raced against him, stick their chests out a little bit further and say, Hey man, if he can do that over there, so can I, you know what I thought of initially when that the race results, because I was, I watched him on, on Sunday, obviously I thought what a great opportunity it would be for you, Jake, Richard, and a couple of the other guys to load one of those bikes up <laughs> and go to Indonesia which I believe is a track that nobody's been to in, in World Superbike. Pull that thing out of a crate, rent a box van, maybe like a U-Haul, just so you're not over, you know, you, you show up looking pretty much like, the, like you did when you showed up at dirt tracks. And then yep. you go out there and race that bike. Oh, you'd, have, you'd have to get used to the Prellies. You throw the Prellies on there, the kid does a few laps, he's up to speed, and then he goes wins a World Superbike race, just like the old days. You know what? I know that Jake Gagne could do that. Yeah, I've I seen him ride. Yep, I've seen him ride on Pirelli's, and like you said, that racetrack is going to be new for everybody. And I know that Richard and Darren 
have got a really good handle on the electronics now. And I know that Jake's head is right in the game and I would love for that opportunity to present itself. Well, we'll have to do a GoFundMe or something. Make it so, make it so. (laughs) Okay. All right, you two, have a wonderful rest of your day. And again, John, thanks for joining us. It was awesome as I knew it would be. All right, thanks guys. Thanks for having me on, it was fun. All right. Yeah.